Welcome again, everybody, to the Music History Podcast. Chris Sheeman here with you once again. Uh, we're going to probably talk about my favorite topic that I've been looking forward to all season, Motown. That's coming up here in uh, just a second. First, the uh, usual shameless self-promotion. Don't forget musichistorypodcasts.com. Go there and check out uh, even more information on each individual podcast from Season 1, all of the guests. You can find links to their books, social media links. You can also find us on Twitter, at Music History Pod. You can follow me on Instagram and on Facebook for more updates on the Music History Podcast by just searching uh, Chris Sheeman. So, shameless self-promoting again out of the way. You know, folks, if I had to be stranded on a deserted island with only one genre of music uh, that I had to listen to for the rest of my life, I'd take as many Motown records as I could carry. Uh, When we talk about pop music, we have to start with Motown. You know, the things that Barry Gordy did in Detroit in the 60s and 70s and then in L.A. in the late 70s and, and even into the 80s continue to shape the way that music is made. They called Motown Hitsville, USA, and for good reason. Uh, from 1961 to 1980, Motown had 47 Billboard number one singles and countless number one albums. Uh, Gordy was a guy who early on liked to play it safe, you know, in a political climate that it was even worse than the one that we're currently dealing with. Gordy, he stayed away from it. He kept his artists on the straight and narrow. That was until Marvin Gaye convinced Gordy to release What's Going On, which is considered by many to be Gaye's signature song. Uh, What's Going On stayed on the charts for almost a year. It sold over 2 million copies, and it gave Gordy the confidence to tackle important issues while maintaining that dominance on radio and with record sales. Uh, My favorite Motown stuff is from Detroit. Maybe it's because I'm from Ohio and I went to college an hour away from Hitsville, but, you know, the Four Tops will always be one of my favorite bands of all time. The Motown sound has its roots in the call and response gospel music that we've talked about in other podcasts this season, but it was also the right music for the right time. Uh, In 1972, Gordy relocated Motown to L.A., and he started to venture into other medias. He made some great documentaries and films. Uh, artists like Lionel Richie, the Commodores, uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes, even Rick James, he, all those folks continued to keep the record label in the spotlight. Then in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the record label was in somewhat decline, financial troubles, popular music changing, all of that kind of storm over Motown. So... Still, none of the music that is in the top 40 today exists without Motown. So what made Motown so special? Why was Detroit the right fit for the music? Did the move to L.A. start the decline of the label? Or was the move why we're still talking about Gordy today? Here to discuss the impact of Motown, its legendary artist, is Peter Benjaminson. Now, We're really lucky to have Peter with us. Benjaminson, he's written four books, four very successful books on Motown records. And his latest release is The Story of Motown, new and revised edition. It's an update on his 1979 book of the same name. And Peter, I can't thank you enough for giving us some of your time here today. Oh, thanks for having me on your show, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity to continue to talk about what appears to be both of our favorite subjects, or the favorite subject for both of us, 
the Motown record company. You know, I, I told Peter at the beginning that my intro was going to go about 30 seconds, uh, so I'm, I'm just glad you're still awake. I ran a little long there, but I just love talking about the the music of Motown so much that I, I guess I rambled a little bit. So let's kind of unpack some of the stuff that I said, uh, Peter, and, and maybe you can help guide the conversation a little bit as well. Why? Why Detroit? There were a number of reasons that Motown was founded in Detroit. Uh, one of them was the auto industry. Uh, of course, that's where Motown gets its name, from the Motor City. Right. Gordy got his ideas about producing records, at least some of them, from working in an auto factory. Uh, the idea of interchangeable parts, uh, an assembly line, a well-organized company that moved its workers around wherever it wanted them, whatever it wanted them to move, uh, that was one reason. So the auto company was a model, was a big deal. I mean, in a way, Gordy invented interchangeable parts uh, and applied that idea to the record business. It had long ago been applied to industry, especially the auto industry. There was also the fact that there were very few talent scouts in Detroit looking for recording artists. There were some small record companies, but there were also a lot of... Uh, black students in the predominantly black high schools who were very good at singing uh, and no one was recruiting them. No one saw, no one except Gordy eventually saw them as a, uh, a reservoir of talent that could be exploited, which is exactly what he did in making Motown a success. Tell me a, a little bit about some of these artists. Who were they, especially in the early days? Well, Gordy started out uh, writing songs for this is before he founded Motown. He wrote, wrote songs for Jackie Wilson, who wasn't a Motown artist, but mm -hmm. uh, was on his way up, and Gordy wrote some of his most successful songs. But then he uh, founded Motown and started recruiting people. Anyone who showed up could eventually get an audition. Sometimes they had to uh, work for nothing or for a couple of dollars as hand clappers or uh, doing humming behind uh, the artists he'd already recruited. But eventually he'd try out these people in the studio. Uh, the obvious ones were the Supremes, who uh, had formed a, a girl group, uh, rehearsed at home, recorded, uh, I should say, performed in uh, various Detroit saloons, music halls, and clubs, and then wanted to work for Motown, but had to wait for a year or so until Gordy recognized their talent. There was talent all over the place. Gordy knew it. They knew it. The only problem was getting it to Gordy and uh, Gordy then making Motown a success. So this was pretty much uh, local talent early on. Did it stay that way throughout before the move to L.A.? Most of Motown's successful years, most of the talent was very local. There were so many people in Detroit, who, uh, so many young people in Detroit, I might add, who wanted to sing and were certainly attracted by the idea of singing at the Motown Record Company, that he had a tremendous reservoir of, uh, of talented people there. You know, Detroit in 1950 had about 2 million people, uh, and right. it was voted America's most beautiful city, which is hard to believe today. Uh, right. one, of, one of the problems it had was uh, uh, Dutch elm disease, which killed all the trees, which made the streets so lovely. I'm digressing, but uh, in any case, there were there were a lot of people uh, who felt very good about Detroit and were very pleased to see a, a, a competent record company arise that could uh, make use of their talents. 
you know, I talked in the intro a little bit about it hearkening a little bit back to gospel music and that call and response that comes from gospel. But what was it about the sound of Motown that made it so appealing, not only to the people of that time, but to people like me who are way younger and are still enjoying it today? African-American music was always popular among whites. White musicians imitated it uh, in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. They did it in blackface. You know, white, basically white men would paint their faces black and perform black music. It was a total ripoff, really, but it showed white people appreciated black music. Right. Then, uh, after a while, black artists started forming their own recording companies or started getting hired by white recording companies. They recorded their work, but it was hard for them to get any sales because records by blacks could only be sold in ghetto record stores. Then you had the whole phenomenon of the covers where people like Pat Boone, uh, a, a white artist, very popular, mm-hmm. uh, he, he sang it for his first seven hits were all songs written and recorded by black musicians. So what, what Gordy's uh, achievement was, was to found a company that would actually hire the black musicians who were singing the songs, give them the, the royalties, put their names on the record, and market them as black musicians. Uh, this was uh, a breakthrough, really, because previously it was <clears throat> whites ripping off the blacks in various underhanded ways. We could talk, probably we could do a podcast on every single Motown artist, (laughs) but uh, how about I leave it up to you? Why don't you pick maybe one or two artists that you'd like to maybe talk a little bit about and why they were so important to the record label? Well, uh, yeah, you know, you mentioned I've written four books on the record company. I first met Flo Ballard, who was one of the original Supremes, when I was working for the Detroit Free Press. I, propo- I went to Grove Press and proposed a book on her, and they said there hasn't been any book on the Motown Record Company, <clears throat> so very few book readers will know what you're talking about. You ought to write a book on the whole Motown Company. So I wrote the book, The Story of Motown, which was the first book ever written about the record company. Then I uh, got involved with some other stuff in my life, and it wasn't for 30 years, at least 30 years, I then decided I'd write the book about Florence Ballard. That was uh, The Lost Supreme, The Life of Dream Girl Florence Ballard. That was all about her. Then I wrote a book about Mary Wells, uh, who was also a Motown superstar, basically their first, uh, their first female superstar. And then finally I wrote one about Rick James called Super Freak, The Life of Rick James, which... Uh, uh, was about the Motown's penultimate superstar. He was the last one before Lionel Richie, who was actually their last superstar. Right. The two of them couldn't have been more different, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick was the precursor of rap. Lionel was still doing ballads. Uh, and Lionel was, was more popular than Rick, so obviously both of them had something going. Uh, who was my... I think the question was, who was who would be my favorite most uh, iconic Motown artists, I, I think the Supremes would have to be it. They, they dominated everyone's consciousness uh, from the mid-60s well into the 70s, and Diana Ross was still going strong into the 80s and 90s, and she and uh, Mary Wilson are still alive, of course, and, and uh, they're still around. But no, the Supremes really did it. The idea of three glamorous black girls 
performing on national TV, which they did on the Ed Sullivan Show, mm -hmm. was a real breakthrough for Motown. Uh, there probably hadn't been any black singing acts on Ed Sullivan uh, before that. It's hard to believe it. They really broke the barrier. And their songs were also extremely understandable, well-sung, well-written, well-produced, and well-distributed, and distributed through both black and white record distributors. All of those were big Motown achievements and made them the iconic Motown group of all time. I always go back to Marvin Gaye, and I talked about it in the intro, you know, Motown was strictly pop. They were straightforward pop with no message really given until Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. So just kind of talk about the impact that that song had not only on the record label, but on society really as a whole. Yeah, you know, Barry was based, Barry Gordy was uh, your basic businessman. He came from a business family. Uh, he had opened a jazz music store that had failed. Uh, he, he didn't like the experience of being a business failure. So he wanted to open a uh, record company that would succeed. To do that, he avoided controversial topics. And to tell you the truth, there weren't that many controversial topics in, uh, from 59 to uh, the period you're talking about for the right. next eight years or so. The only controversial topic uh, was, was integration, which he was already uh, overcoming. So he, what he wanted was songs that, that would appeal to you know, the vast mass of usually teenage or younger uh, record listeners. They were all about love uh, and enjoyment and infatuation. Politics had really uh, no place in his business scheme. Uh, it wasn't until the mid-60s when uh, things started getting hot. There were the uh, Detroit riots, uh, the Vietnam War, the assassinations. Then he had a problem because uh, he had this... He, People convinced him that he couldn't go on just producing records about uh, romance and love, no matter how good they were. Companies were outflanking him, uh, producing uh, very uh, controversial but very good songs. I mean, uh, what's going on uh, about the discrimination and uh, and uh, you know the war and poverty and lots of other records. There was acid rock, psychedelic rock. Right. Uh, Gordy. Gordy was, had to be basically dragged, kicking and screaming into this. He tried to, he didn't want to even uh, distribute Marvin Gaye's record, uh, What's Going On, which turned out to be a gigantic bestseller. Uh, he also was facing competition at that point from other uh, white-owned record companies, like a, a, the big one was Atlantic, uh, which uh, were hiring his people away, his uh, recording artists away, and producing them very well. It's interesting, you know, uh, Atlantic Records was founded by the Erdogan brothers. They were the sons of the Turkish ambassador to the U.S. at the time. Uh, since they, they uh, didn't feel the same way about black people that most white Americans did at the time. That is, they were not racist. So, so they just blithely wandered into Washington, D.C. area black record stores and bought records and thought, geez, this music is great. Uh, you know, we ought to found a record company to produce it, which they did. Now, they, theirs was found a little later than Gordy's, but they, they turned out to be his, uh, one of his big competitors because they just, they just ignored racism entirely. And by that time, Gordy, I must admit, Gordy had made it possible for black for records produced and sung by black recording artists to appeal to white people and be distributed 
through the white distribution network. Right. Now, uh, Gordy moved to L.A. in 1972, and at the top of the podcast, I kind of maybe made an inference that this may have started the decline of Motown. Uh, Obviously, he had a great 13-year run, at least 13-year run uh, after that with still a lot of hits, but uh, do I have something there or am I a little bit off base? No, no, I think you're right on you're right on track, right on base. The uh Gordy after uh however many years it was from 59 to 72 was starting to get was starting to get tired of the record business. Uh he's a very creative guy. He had figured out how to produce in his mind, he had figured out how to produce uh best-selling pop records. You know, there was the there was the uh controversy over producing things like Marvin Gaye's records, his later records, but Gordy didn't want to be stuck for the rest of his life doing, producing one record after another after another. Uh, he was a creative guy, and what he wanted to do was get into movies, and for that matter, he wanted to get into Broadway shows, but movies was the big thing. He wanted to produce better black movies than those that had been produced so far. He, he was a guy who wanted to improve things. Uh, I admire him for that. You know, there had been black exploitation movies already produced, uh, various gangster movies with uh, blacks as villains, uh, various various movies that weren't really all that good. Right. Uh, Gordy wanted to, uh, well, he knew that you, to make movies you had to go to L.A., certainly at that time, and he wanted to make movies that, uh, showed black people in a, were still interesting, but showed black people in a better light. But that's what he actually did. Uh, he did a great movie about uh, uh, Billie Holiday starring Diana Ross. Then he did one about uh, a black fashion designer also starring Diana Ross. Uh, and he did several others, one about Scott Joplin, a uh, black musician. I, I call those movies Motown plot movies. Uh, just like the records were Motown sound movies, right. Gordy had a, a plot for movies. It was the Motown plot. It was always the mostly virtuous black artist trying to rise in society and meeting uh, resistance, which he usually was able to overcome. <clears throat> it was a good theme. It, it appealed to black people. At least two of his movies were quite successful, uh, then you know he met a lot of competition in Hollywood, and the rec and his own record and movie uh, success rate tailed off. But he certainly had a good run. It's very few people. There are very few people in the world, possibly none other, who have had uh, equivalent success with both records and movies. It takes a lot of moxie to you know they're very different vehicles and animals. It takes a lot of moxie to move from one to the other. Uh, he managed to do that quite successfully for a while, but everything everything has to come to an end eventually, and and that's what happened to Motown. But it had a great record, and I mean that in uh, it's, it's a pun. I guess I mean he had a, he had a great record and great records. Peter Benjaminson uh, is the author of the story of Motown. It's the new and revised edition. It's the update to his 1979 book. And I imagine, Peter, before we let you go, spend a minute talking about some of these updates. What can folks look for in the book? I imagine there's a lot to talk about. Yes, there is. Uh, One of the uh, things we've done, uh, I went to high school in Menlo Park, California, with Greel Marcus, who's uh, a major rock critic. 
and he's added uh, a great introduction to the book uh, about uh, about Motown, which I don't want to give it all away, but it's about more about how his view of Motown. Then I uh, the, the book itself is updated, but it it covered the entire history, even in '79. It could cover the history of the entire Motown record company, and it still does. It's just been corrected and made a little better uh, for for current readers. That it it really captured the whole history of the country uh, of the company, and uh, it's been improved to uh, make sure that everything's correct in the book. Uh, I've written several other books about Motown, and they've they've captured the details of the later. Uh, performers there, especially Rick James. I wrote the book Super Freak, The Life of Rick James, right. which shows how Motown uh, got into uh, near rap production and uh, punk funk production, which was much different than its earlier <clears throat> earlier uh, pop records, the standard Motown sound records. So between those two books, we've I've covered the entire entire history of the Motown record company as uh, as uh, pompous as that seems with four books I think I've managed to get 80% of it uh, I'm working on various other books about the company and I hope they'll get the final 20% well, and I hope you'll come back when when uh, when you have those, Peter. Uh, before we let you go, please uh, let the folks know. Uh, I'm sure Amazon, but to wherever folks need to go to find the book, where can they go? Yes, all the books are on Amazon. Uh, my, my name is Benjaminson. It's Benjamin with an S O N on the end. I've got a website, PeterBenjaminson.com. You can go to the website or to Amazon. Look up my name. Look up the books. Uh, they're there now. Uh, I'm biased, but I urge you to buy them. I think if you want to know anything about Motown, uh, those are the books you should get. And uh, I appreciate you having me on the show, Chris, because I can uh, not only talk about my favorite subject, but obviously put in a, what I hope is a relatively modest pitch for these four books. Well, Peter, it's been my pleasure to hear uh, your insights and your knowledge on the subject, and I thank you for your time here today. Okay, thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. That was Peter Benjaminson, everybody. Once again, it's the Story of Motown, News and Revised Edition. You can find that and his other books on Motown uh, on his website and on Amazon. Well, folks, that's going to wrap it up for another podcast. Once again, uh, feel free to uh, check out our website, musichistorypodcasts.com, also at musichistorypod on Twitter and at Chris Scheman on Facebook and on Instagram. We'll talk to you during the next podcast, everybody. Take care.